You are listening to Resurrection Indiana. To find out more about our meeting times and location, check us out on Facebook or Instagram, or visit our website at resurrectionindiana.org. Bob Lupton was a community development leader, community developer in the city of Atlanta. Kind of what that means is that he um, worked probably for a nonprofit in lower in a lower income community, um, working at serving and and helping the poor, providing opportunities, providing training and and so forth. But in uh, one of his books about his work, he tells the story of Mrs. Smith. And he says Mrs. Smith was a woman in his neighborhood who was dangerously overweight. She was in poor health. Her internal plumbing didn't work as well as it used to. And she would sit next to him in church every week. He said, the smell of stale sweat and excrement can be nauseating. And sometimes, he said, she would hint that she would like to be invited home for Sunday dinner. And as he described this Relationship, He said, to invite Mrs. Smith into our home means we will have filth and stench soil our couch. There will be stubborn, offensive odors in our living room. My greatest fear is that she will want to sit in my new recliner. I wouldn't want to be rude and cover it with plastic to protect it, but I know it would never be the same again. <laughs> now... What Lupton describes is a conflict that actually exists in all of us and that James addresses in our passage. Now, of course, his example is extreme, but in all sorts of ways, we also are often guilty of judging by appearances of showing favoritism. And that's particularly true when it comes to the way that we treat those who are rich and those who are poor, James tells us. The commandment that God gives us is to love and to show mercy to everyone, regardless of their life situation. If we are God's people, if we are people who have been shown mercy ourselves, and we'll get to that, God's people need to be people who are characterized by mercy. And so James shows us, in some ways there's a lot in this passage, and so I think there's some parts that we may skim over a little bit, but generally... The first part of this passage, the second part of this passage, we will simply look at what does it look like to fail in mercy, and what does it look like to succeed in mercy? What does it look like to fail in mercy? In the first seven verses of this passage, James begins with this command to show no partiality, and he connects it with our faith. It's as if he is saying, because... You hold the faith in Jesus Christ, there should be no partiality, no favoritism among you. And the phrase, the Lord of glory, that he says in that first verse there, reminds us that Jesus is the glory of God who is revealed to us. James gives us an example of what that looks like. Suppose, he says, two men come into a gathering of God's people, most likely some sort of a worship service, whatever this looked like for James and and the apostles. One of them, he says, is dressed in fine clothes, wearing a gold ring. 
Now today, of course, we generally associate, at least for men, rings with marriage, a wedding ring. And in this case, of course, we can assume that this man is wealthy, but also that he is a person of some status, that in his case, the gold ring maybe symbolizes that he belongs to the Roman upper class. And in contrast, the other man is obviously poor and dressed in shabby clothes. Remember in verse 21 of the last chapter, so we talked about this a while back, James says to put away all filthiness. This is the same word here. This man's clothes are filthy. And so James is painting a picture of maybe somebody who is homeless, who is dressed in mismatched, stained, and smelly rags. These two men walk into the worship service at the same time. Maybe it's almost full, and everybody looks around, and somebody makes a decision. One of these men is invited to sit in a place of honor, maybe the last seat that is available in a prominent place, while the other is asked to stand at the side or even take a seat on the floor. And there's no question as to which person is honored and which one is dishonored. Now, what James describes is actually kind of a universal problem in the church. You know, early in American history, churches raised money by renting pew boxes. You know, similar to the pew benches that exist in many churches today, which, by the way, aren't that comfortable. It's maybe why a lot of churches don't have those anymore, at least more recently built places. But similar to those benches, except that they were enclosed. It was like stepping into a box, like a private box. And the wealthy would pay an annual rent to secure a well-placed seat in churches. And again, this was one of the ways that churches raised money or were able to to manage, meet their expenses as well. And in some cases, that rental fee also meant not just that you were allowed to sit there, but also meant that you were responsible for that. So otherwise, the church might sort of send you a letter if the cushions are becoming worn or if it needs to be cleaned. That's your job. But those without the financial means to rent a pew sat in seats in the far-off corners of the sanctuary that were labeled free. And today, of course, you can visit historic churches and see names of famous historical figures on the boxes where they would sit in worship. Actually, visit a church on a family vacation this last summer in Williamsburg that was exactly like that. And you could see the names printed printed on metal plates showing who sat where, some of the founders of this country. Some of those lasted until the mid 20th century. The people who can afford get to sit here and everybody else gets to sit over there. Remember that James is writing his letter early in the church's history, even before the Apostle Paul wrote his letters. And then remember that we fall into that same favoritism today. This is a sin that has always been with us. This is a sin that's always been with us, so common that we don't even think about it. In some cases, we're not even aware of it. And so there is favoritism being shown by the people of God, but then there is favoritism shown by God himself. 
While we, James says, honor the rich and look down on the poor, James turns that around. He says, but God actually does the opposite. James points out that it is the rich, not the poor, who are guilty of oppressing the church. The rich are the ones who drag Christians into court. The rich are the ones who threaten lawsuits. The rich are the ones who dishonor and misuse the name of Jesus. In other words, it's the rich who use their means and influence to oppress others and to reject the gospel. In contrast, James says, it is the poor who have been chosen to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. In God's economy, the shabbily dressed man who has been pushed to the side is actually the one who is a child of the king. Now, that, of course, raises a question here. Is James saying that God shows favoritism in the same way that we do, except that God reverses it? You know, we favor those who are wealthy, but God favors the poor. Is he saying that God welcomes and honors the poor and he rejects those who are rich? On the one hand, no. Because even James refers to believers who are wealthy. He did that right off the bat in chapter 1. And we know that God's promises are for those who love him, as he says here in verse 5. I mean, James is making a point, but what he is saying is a general principle, not a rule. Of course, there are wealthy people who believe the gospel, and of course, there are poor people who reject it. On the other hand, is God showing favoritism? James says, yes. Because while it is true that God doesn't choose only the poor, and it is not only the rich who prosecute believers and blaspheme the name of Jesus, in general, one scholar says, this is not only true, but it's actually overwhelmingly true. One of the things that James warns us about here is the fact that we cannot and should not underestimate the attraction that wealth holds for us. And the fact that the Bible is clear that we cannot love both God and money. And so we need to ask ourselves why God holds a special place for those who are poor in the world and why he seems to warn against those who are wealthy. And one clue may be back in that first verse and that phrase that describes Jesus as the Lord of glory. Because when he became human in the person of Jesus, God revealed himself to us. But when God the Son became human, he laid aside his glory. Paul talks about this in Philippians. Jesus was rich, but for our sake he became poor. Jesus became poor, and that is how he requires that we come to him. And so the question of whether we honor or dishonor the poor around us shows whether we understand Jesus and what he has done for us. Sometimes there's a criticism toward the Christian church, which is that, and just Christianity in general, that this is just a religion for those who are weak, for those who are needy. This is just, Christianity is just sort of a crutch for people who can't make it in this world. And it is worth asking, it is the case that churches sometimes very much do attract people who are poor and needy more than they attract people who are wealthy and put together. Is it possible that religion is just some sort of a crutch 
to make people who are poor feel better? Suppose you can make that argument. But it might also be the case that those who are poor and who are needy are actually more in touch with the reality of their condition before God. That when we are needy in material things in this world, we are perhaps more likely to connect that to our neediness before God. Whereas if you have everything put together, it's easy to mask. Well, I don't need anything. Every person is created in the image of God and consequently deserving of dignity and respect. And for us at Resurrection Indiana, one of the questions that we need to ask as we seek to become an established church here in this community is, what are ways in which we uphold that dignity and value of all people who are in our community? What is the way in which we serve those who are needy, who are poor? And in some ways, we've in some ways we've done that. Whether it's through, you know, packing lunches for or partnering with um, with some programs, which we've done a little bit of. But that's an area that we will need to think through. What does it look like to not show partiality, or? Maybe another way to put it is to show the kind of partiality that James actually describes here. So this is what it looks like to fail in mercy. What does it look like to succeed in that? That leads us to the second part of our passage here. James goes on to show us what it should look like. He's given us that example of the two men who show up in a worship service at the beginning, but now he gives us other examples. Now, James is concerned with the whole of the law, and that's what he begins to talk about here in verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. What does that mean for Christians today? Sometimes we call this the law of love. Now, I can tell you, it is not uncommon at all, and perhaps you've heard this as well, to hear today that the law is something that is given to God's people in the Old Testament, But because Christians believe in Jesus, Christians live under grace, we just need to love. We just need to follow Jesus. Christians are not people who are under the law anymore. The law doesn't have any point for us. Often what that means is that we need to follow our hearts and discern for ourselves what we think Jesus would do. We are just too, well, if, if everybody would just love, we would be more like Jesus wants us to be. The problem with that, of course, is that the law actually spells out what love looks like, starting with the Ten Commandments and moving out to a myriad of commands in the Old Testament that sort of spell out and give practical examples for what that looks like. The summary of the law when Jesus is asked, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. It's generally understood to be the summary of the Ten Commandments. The first four commandments speak of what it looks like to love God. The last six commandments speak of what it looks like to love your neighbor. All of it is about love. And again, this myriad of commands throughout the rest of the Old Testament that spell out in all of those instances what this looks like. In other words, if you want to know what the law of love looks like, well, we just need to love like Jesus. Well, what did Jesus do? Jesus followed the law. And James talks about the whole of the law, and he gives that summary. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
Now, we understand that in a couple of ways. James is quoting from Leviticus 19, but he's also being, again, consistent with Jesus, who summarizes the law as love God and love your neighbor. In other words, showing favoritism is a breaking of the commandment to love our neighbors. The other thing that James does is this. He goes on to show that the law is a unity. It's coherent. It all goes together. That's in part what he's doing when he says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. Now we tend to think of the law as a series of sort of individual commandments. We assume that if we break one commandment, the other ones are left intact. Now partly what James describes is helpful. He gives this comparison of adultery and murder. If you commit one, but you don't commit another, both of course are violations of the law. And along those lines, we might say that, you know, someone who holds up a convenience store and accidentally shoots the clerk is not going to be let go just because he refrained from rifling through the clerk's pockets afterwards. Another way to put it is this, that we think keeping the law is a question of doing more good things than bad things. Especially if you read the Bible and we take seriously God's word and understand that we don't keep the law very well. We always fall short. And so keeping the law really is a matter of doing more good than you do bad. You know, when we do good, our credits with God increase. And of course, when we do bad, we lose a little bit. But the idea is to keep a positive balance. We want to keep a healthy balance on the positive side. But James says that's not how the law works. The law is not a collection of individual laws and and you want to keep more than you break. Mm -hmm. He actually says it's a little bit more like a big plate glass window. The law is one large sheet of glass. And what happens when you throw a brick through a window? The whole thing shatters. Smashing one part causes the whole thing to crack and break. You cannot break part of the window. You can only break the whole thing. And here's why. God's law is not just an arbitrary list of rules to follow or even rules for our good, what's best for us. It is for our good, but it's more than that. The law is a reflection of the character of God himself, who he is. When we look at the law, not only do we see what God desires for us, but we see him. We see his character. And so we can't break one law in isolation. Every breaking of the law is an act of rebellion against the very character of God. Or is what happens when we think that some laws are okay to break, but, but other ones you don't. You are then deciding what the law is. And if the law is a reflection of, who, of God's character, you are deciding who God is. Rather than letting him tell you who he is. You are trusting in a God of your own making rather than receiving God as he presents himself. And so we are held accountable for that rebellion, James says. 
But then almost unexpectedly, James encourages us to speak and act as those who are under the law of liberty. I say that's unexpected, because what does he mean by that? And it raises questions, because that's usually, again, not really how we look at the law. We think of the law as something that restrains us. We think of the law as something that restricts us. James is adamant throughout his letter that we are to be a people who keep the law, who work at obedience to God's commands. And he says that's necessary if we consider ourselves to be followers of Jesus. But at the same time, we also need to see what he is not saying. James is not saying that we need to keep the law in order to be accepted by God. He is is saying that we need to keep the law because we are accepted. Again, one scholar puts it this way. He says, God's gracious acceptance of us does not end our obligation to obey him. It sets it on a new footing. No longer is God's law a threatening, confining burden. For the will of God now confronts us as a law of liberty, an obligation that we discharge in the joyful knowledge that God has liberated us from the penalty of sin, and in his spirit he has given us the power to obey him. Go back to the law being a reflection of God's character. If you love him, you will desire to know him. You'll desire to grow in knowing him. And the law is where we see God's character. You should have a desire to know that character. And that is a very different motivation than thinking we're earning something with God by our obedience. Finally, James brings us back around to the importance of showing mercy. This is verse 13. God will judge those who act without mercy. He says, we hear the words of the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And there is the implication in Jesus' words that if we don't forgive, that we will not be forgiven. And that's an idea that comes up elsewhere in Scripture as well. So we're called to show mercy to the rich and to the poor, and especially the poor. To not do so is to deny that we ourselves are poor in spirit and in need of grace. And of course, Jesus didn't come for the healthy, but he came for, he says, the sick. Mercy, James says, triumphs over judgment. And the person who extends mercy is the person who has received it. Now, he told us at the beginning of this passage of a shabbily dressed man who walks into worship. It reminds me the story of another shabbily dressed man who showed up in a well-to-do church one Sunday. And as this man walked down the aisle, he wasn't able to find a place to sit, and it might have been partly because people sort of slid over filling up spaces as he went by. So he kept going and then found himself at the front of the sanctuary where he sat down on the floor. And whispers could be heard throughout the congregation, both about the man's appearance and the fact that he had the audacity to sit down in front of everyone. And soon, an elder of the church began making his way down the center aisle toward the man. 
Maybe there was a sigh of release, relief. Finally, someone would take care of this situation. Maybe somebody would show this man to a seat in the back somewhere. And when this elder reached the front of the room, the people could see him whisper a few words to the man sitting cross-legged on the floor. They waited. And then this elder sat down and joined the man. God has shown mercy to us. We are God's people. We need to be characterized by that same mercy. Let me pray for this.